dizziness. Breathless. Absolutely wiped out. Flushing on my face. Tinnitus. My sense of taste and smell. Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil and this is... Emily-Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. In this podcast, we bring you the latest research and information about the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Right, Emily, how was your week this week? I've had good days and bad days. Um, Today is not a good day. I have a cracking headache and I'm very shaky. But I got out of bed and took the kids to school and I'm here. How was your week? I've had a really bad week this week. Um, My heart's been kind of my main symptom but it's new in the way it's presenting itself. So I get daily palpitations now, even when I'm just sitting down and I'm very breathless because my heart's racing a lot of the time. So that's quite depressing. Is it cyclical for you? Yeah, very cyclical. I normally have, say, about 10 days of feeling quite rough and then I'll start to get better for about three weeks. It seems to follow my hormonal cycle, which I think is quite common amongst women who are suffering with long COVID. And it's something that we discussed with this week's guest, Dr. Elaine Maxwell. Um, For our second session, we wanted to try and bring you an overview of the data and research that's out there about long COVID. The National Institute for Health and Research have now put together two reviews the most recent of which collated information from over 300 research papers and publications, as well as conducting their own survey. Dr. Maxwell, author of the review, has a background in clinical nursing, which enables her to approach long COVID from a holistic angle. We hope you find what she has to say as interesting as we did. Uh, Good morning, Dr. Maxwell. Could I ask you to summarise from all your reading and work in this field, how would you describe long COVID? So long COVID is a multi-system condition that appears to be different from an acute infection. And we don't understand all of the causes of it. And that has led some of us, including me, to think that actually there are a number of different things going on. And one of the problems in trying to understand it is lumping it all under one umbrella term, because we see different patterns of uh, symptoms, we see different diagnostic test results, and we see different um, durations of symptoms. So we do see quite a lot of people who have the symptoms you'd expect after any viral infection that spontaneously resolve within three months without any medical treatment. And that's very, very different from the people who are still ill 15 months later. So I think one of the most important things we have to do, we start saying this is more than one thing. So let's just talk about the systems that it affects. For me personally, it's my uh, cardiac. I've had real cardiac issues. Mine was mainly neurological, so I've had this uh, headache. There, are, there's one set which you could sort of pigeonhole as neurological, and there are, then I think there are other things that go alongside it, um, which you couldn't necessarily cluster together in the same way. 
So I think um, it may not be that helpful to think about it in terms of the organs it affects, because what you're describing there, both of you, could have a number of different causes. So it could be an inflammatory response. It could be organ damage because of lack of oxygen during the acute phase. Um, it could be microemboli. We know that coagulation is a problem both in acute and long COVID. And so one of the challenges I think we have is how we look at this phenomenon of long COVID, whether we're going to do it holistically and say, are you one of the people who's more affected by the clotting disorders or by the uh, immunological dysfunction or by the autonomic uh, issues. So I think it's quite important to look beyond just what the symptoms say and look at what the different causal mechanisms might be. So we know that women are more likely to have long COVID. And yet yes, um, your respondents, did 81% of your respondents were female? Is that correct? Yes. That is a, actually a much higher proportion than we've seen reported either by Zoe or by possibly the ONS statistics. That's a huge majority of women. So I think one of the problems with the research is a lot of it is self-selected. We don't know where to go to sample people because last year, certainly in the UK, you couldn't get a test unless you were admitted to hospital. So a lot of the big studies are biased towards people who've been admitted to hospital with an acute infection, which we know is predominantly men. If you then look at the self-reported symptom surveys, uh, they tend to put long COVID as a much higher proportion of women. I think if you look at ONS and you look at ZOE and you look at all those um, studies now, they do all agree that it's more common in women. The margin differs. We're now starting to hear from the patient groups that a lot of women have got menstrual cycle problems. And that comes back to issues in the research about you only find what you ask about. So most researchers aren't asking about the sorts of symptoms that women have. They're actually focusing very much on uh, cardiorespiratory symptoms. Uh, and we know that cardiac problems tend to be more common in men. And so we've got this whole thing that we've seen before about medical research focuses on what they found out from men and then generalised to women. So the, the CDC in America just updated their long COVID guidance um, on the 14th of June, and they have included menstrual cycles as one of the symptoms to look for. But if you look at most of the research, there's a list of symptoms, and they don't include the sort of things that women are more likely to have or that women exclusively have. What are the implications? Are you saying that, that it has an impact on the menstrual cycle or you're saying that the menstrual cycle has an impact on the long COVID? Well, both actually. Um, so what's what the patient groups are reporting is that um, the menstrual cycles are disrupted. So um, young girls getting early menarche uh, women who've got established menstruation are having longer and heavier periods. Um, and some people who are postmenopausal have started bleeding again. So there's a whole range there. But in addition to that, the patient groups are now reporting that their long COVID symptoms are worse just before their periods. Are you finding in your research that uh, people 
talk about having like waves of symptoms. Yeah, the corona coaster. Yes. So one of the things that was interesting for us, when we started off looking um, last June, when we started looking about the evidence, when it was clear that there would be some people who would have ongoing problems, we originally thought that we would be looking at people who've been discharged from hospital like everybody else. Um, but we decided to put together a patient reference group and ask people directly. And that's where we started to find this divergence between what the research was saying. And that's when we started to say, hang on, this seems to be a big problem for people who are not admitted to hospital. And they told us about the corona coaster, that you get better from one set of symptoms. You have a period of feeling well. And then you crash back down again. And they described it as the corona coaster. If you look at the research that we have now, it's interesting, but it's not definitive. We don't know if we've looked at the full range of symptoms. We don't know if we've looked at the full time scale. There is increasing evidence that as well as the corona coaster, symptoms change over time. So the symptoms you're describing at 12 months are different from the ones you were describing at three months. So it is quite complex. And a lot of our initial research has been cross-sectional surveys with people who've been ill up to five months. And so that's not the whole story. Could you just tell us the number of symptoms that you have identified through your review? Uh, well, we didn't actually list it in the number of symptoms, but certainly the patient-led collaborative came up with 205 different symptoms. There, there's um, there's another big study that's literally just come out from um, Fair Health, which is a charity in America that's looked at two billion health insurance claims for people who've had COVID, and they talk about uh, different symptoms being more prevalent in different biological sex and different age groups. So it would be hard to come up with the definitive list of symptoms in long COVID, which I think goes back to my earlier point and point we made in our very first review is there are probably a number of different causal mechanisms and a number, therefore, of different conditions. And if we're lumping them all together in this big heterogeneous group, it's going to be hard to move forward in understanding them. I bump into friends who've had COVID and they've got this very distinctive rosy cheeks and I'll say is that new and they're like yeah I don't know what it is I've tried all sorts of creams but but they haven't gone to their GP and similar symptoms like they're like we're still quite tired we can't you know we go up and down the stairs and I'll, you know I feel quite breathless and I say well it's not your lungs it's probably you had your heart checked out and it's there's a lot of people out there who are not going to their GPs with these symptoms but for people who are interested or who are suffering from it can recognize them so one of the things that Scotland has just started just recently is they're going to follow up everybody who's had a positive PCR test and a sample of people who tested negatively and ask them at various time points what their symptoms are for two years. And I think that's probably the only way we're really going to understand it. Um, because at the moment, we just don't have a sampling frame to, to select people for research from. And if you don't know what your population is, you don't know how representative your study is. I, that, that is the only way we're going to understand it. In terms of uh, the breathless going upstairs, some really interesting research on that. Because um, 
so Betty Raymond, who does the Seymour study that's part of um, post-COVID, and various others have, have looked at whether this is cardiac or respiratory. And in fact, there's some suggestion that it's neither. It's actually mitochondrial stress. So um, there is some evidence that uh, the virus may interfere with the mitochondrial uptake of oxygen, which means that you may be able to take in oxygen. So a lot of the studies that looked at respiratory problems have done these sort of tests and they've looked at people who are exercising and they've measured their oxygen saturation uh, and that's normal, but they still have to stop the test. And it may well be around the mitochondrial stress. Also some suggestion that that's a, causing some of the brain fog because actually the brain uses a lot of energy that is produced by the mitochondria. That, that that's one of the reasons why I said I wasn't entirely sure that using the organ symptoms was the best way because if you have palpitations or if you have shortness of breath it may not be the first organ that you think of that's causing the problems. That's really interesting. You know as we've already said a lot of these studies are very small. I personally think that we need to do a lot more research into immunology. I mean the it seems that um, so there's another area of research that talks about how um, how the the blood clots that we're seeing in long COVID um, are actually because of an, an immune response that's uh, causing endothelial damage. The endothelial cells inside the blood vessels they're inflamed, so roughed up a bit, and that's causing clots. There are a lot of immunologists who don't get a lot of coverage in the media who are having a lot of discussions about immunological changes. And again, that may explain the difference in women because we know that T-cell responses in women tend to be different uh, than men. And long COVID does seem to be associated with a prolonged T-cell dysfunction. We are starting to see some reliable markers which is good because it means that you're not just being dismissed as being hysterical women the question now is what do we do with that how what do you treat are those it markers that we're seeing uh well there's you know we're seeing a whole load of inflammatory markers including the mast cells the the um ferritin even crp which is a fairly routine uh marker um we're seeing D-dimers. So interesting, the clotting profile of people with long COVID isn't quite the same as the clotting profile of people without COVID. What people are saying is, oh, this is really interesting. I haven't seen this before. There is definitely a change there, but it isn't quite what we'd expect because we'd expect other things to be happening at the same time. And we don't actually quite know what to do about it at the moment. Yes, because all my other blood work was normal. My yeah. CLP, my yeah. D-dimer. I think long COVID challenges our assumptions that we understand physiology. And so there's a lot of people who are saying, what you're telling me can't be true because it doesn't fit with what I know about human physiology. And people are going, well, that's all very interesting, but this isn't what I've got. Uh, and now we're starting to get, you know, these blood tests. One of the things about the organ impairment is we don't know if this is new or 
previously undiagnosed. So there's a lot of studies saying, you know, we found this level of organ impairment. There's um, one study that looked at US college athletes and found, I think it was 2.9% of them had got some sort of cardiac impairment. And the question, of course, is, is that just hidden and was always there? Or was it actually caused by COVID? And just, you know, the the Danish footballer who had cardiac arrest shows that actually people do have hidden conditions. So it's really hard to understand. I think on the positive, though, frustrating though it is for people with long COVID, for a new phenomenon to exist and to have, for us to have got this far in terms of research in a year is like moving at warp speed for research, which is really frustrating for people with long COVID, I know. Um, so NIHR has... Um, had a call um, out earlier this year on understanding long COVID and people who are not in hospital. We've got another call out now. There's the funding panel to discuss the bids. And that was very clearly saying we want studies that actually look at how we treat long COVID. Because I think we're at the point now where we have enough information, imperfect as it is, to say there is a phenomenon that affects a lot of people and it's serious and important. I think we've moved on from the, well, is it a thing? To, yes, it is a thing. Let's now understand it and treat it. One of the study reviews that you released, it suggested, and I think in the most recent one, that there are four, there could be four possible syndromes. Uh, We're not saying this is a definitive list or even that it's the correct list, but we're saying there are probably uh, a number of syndromes. And Chris Whitty has you know, gone on record as saying he agrees with that. Two of the things we expected to see, one is post-intensive care syndrome. So we know that people who have spent time in intensive care uh, take a long time to recover, that they can have psychological problems, um, as well as things you might expect from being ill. So we expected a large number of people with post-intensive care syndrome. And I do wonder if that should be treated separately from long COVID. But do we almost separate out the um, post-intensive care patients from those um, well, with what, you're, what we're terming long COVID? That is one of the limitations of the research, is a lot of the research doesn't tell you, doesn't, doesn't cut it by who actually had intensive care. They do a little bit of demographics at the front and then they lump all the results together, which I think is a, you know, a challenge. So there's the post-intensive care syndrome that we might have expected to see that wouldn't be to do with long COVID. Then the post-viral fatigue, and I don't mean chronic fatigue. We know that after a number of viral infections, people feel tired and lethargic for a while. And we definitely see that. If you look at the ONS figures, you see a drop from that 1 million people who are currently saying they've had symptoms from four weeks. When you get to 12 weeks, you do see a drop. Uh, And those are people who are not getting treatment and they have probably got the post-viral fatigue you would expect to see after viral infection. What you're then left with is the group that we probably didn't expect to see and don't really understand, who are the people who seem to have something specifically related to a COVID uh, infection. And we even see it in people who are asymptomatic. We have this group of people and and the debate about what we call it is interesting as well. We decided on living with long COVID because we didn't want to 
call it something that would have implications for our understanding. And we don't, I don't call it post-COVID because that implies that the COVID has, infection has finished. And there is evidence of viral persistence in some people. They found um, fractions of the virus in the brain, but they, f- they find it quite a lot in the gut. And to call it post-COVID sounds like a recovery and that the disease isn't still active. But what we are seeing is that people who have got changes in their pathology, we've got people whose D-dimer levels are still raised three months after the initial infection. Because we have this traditional medical model that everything is linear, that you have your infection and that resolves and then you've got the problems. And that plays into the idea that what, what long COVID needs is rehabilitation. But for a lot of people, they may have a still active disease that needs active treatment and may deteriorate. But but my point is there is debate about the title. So I think long COVID captures the uncertainty. I think post-COVID suggests, right, COVID's done and now we're left with the consequences. What are the treatment options that you have already seen coming to the fore and what has actually been effective? Have you seen anything that's actually been effective? There are different patterns, different phenotypes, different syndromes, whatever word we want to use. And they they do need different um, approaches. For a lot of people, it's learning to develop their own strategy to deal with something we can't yet treat. So the autonomic disorders, you know, and, and that it isn't the majority of people, but there are definitely a significant group of people who are getting um, the dizziness, fainting, low blood pressure of, of autonomic disorders. We do actually already know there are some conditioning strategies that help people to deal with that. Helping people to understand that actually that isn't going to kill them because it's very frightening. So people need a lot of help and support. Then there are the conditioning techniques where people learn to recognize the early symptoms, stop, you know, adjust, not get up so quickly, sit down and wait. So there are some strategies like that. With the brain fog, that occurs in a number of other conditions. So multiple sclerosis, a lot of the sort of symptoms of brain fog cognitive dysfunction, not being able to find words common there. And there are um, strategies for managing and resolving that. And there's um, it's been a couple of Cochrane reviews on that. So some of it is about managing symptoms and learning what we already know from other conditions. And um, I may be biased here with my nursing background, but I think clinical nurse specialists have a big role here because all those conditions already have clinical nurse specialists who support people with those conditions. Pain, actually one of the top three symptoms is always pain. So, And, and the um, Veterans Affairs study found that um, big increase in, in analgesia prescriptions, particularly opiates. Well, managing chronic pain is quite a specialist skill and just chucking opiates them is probably not always the best thing to do. So there's a lot of managing symptoms rather than treating them. There are suggestions um, that using a combination of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and um, oral anticoagulants might help. 
There's also a study going on in the USA that should finish its data collection in November, looking at anti-inflammatories and uh, anticoagulants. Because this clotting disorder does seem to be quite a major um, factor. We've both been put on um, antihistamines. Um, What have you read about... uh that either that study or or the use of antihistamines so i've heard a lot of people talk about that um certainly i've heard um doctors at some of the long covid clinics talk about using antihistamines it seems promising i haven't read any research findings on that i haven't seen anything published on that Um, i know that a lot of the patient support groups talk about low histamine diets as well because um, well, that's, you know, mast cell syndrome that that's known in. Certainly UCLH are saying that, you know, they want to do some research in it because they're finding anecdotally that it's helping. So it's, a, it's an area for research. I mean, one of the things that I personally think, and this is me personally, not NIHR, is that we need a recovery style platform trial in, in the same way that they tried drugs that were already licensed, but using them for COVID in ITU and famously came up with dexamethasone as as the best drug. Um, There are a number of licensed drugs that plausibly would help with long COVID. Yes, so my cardiologist put me on Coltracine. Right. And apparently that's a a very common, he's prescribing it to everybody. Yeah. Uh, And but it's not on license for your heart it's for gout I think (laughs) yeah I think there are a number of certainly what we're hearing back from certainly from the long COVID clinics is there are a range of already licensed drugs that they're using so I think what people are doing at the moment are are treating symptoms so they're saying we know the symptom we've seen it in other conditions so let's try what we use for this symptom what we need to do now is bring that together into a proper trial so that it moves from being um, professional experience to actually clearly uh, researched findings. Yeah, because so much of, of what we're seeing is simply anecdotal at the moment, isn't it? And and the treatments and so forth, the the results of those are, are anecdotal. Um, in terms of your research recommendations, and one of the things that you detail in the review is that we need to create a minimum data set. So you need to set up parameters yeah. for these studies. Well, one, one of the challenges at looking at all the research that has been published, and we looked at 302 papers for the second review, is that you can't do a meta-analysis. You can't synthesize them because they use different sampling frames. They use different time points when they're measuring the symptoms. They use different lists of symptoms. So a lot of them will say X number of people have at least one symptom. Uh, But they use different lists and all the patients in their study have a different symptom. So at at the moment, as as you've rightly pointed out, there are lots of small studies and you would hope that you could meta-analyze those, but you can't until we get a standard set. So even the case definitions, so the US case definition, the PASP, that starts at three weeks. Now, the post-COVID syndrome in the UK starts at 12 weeks. The World Health Organization 
has just issued a new definition that has identified different time points. And they have recognised the increasing number of people who are ill for over six months. So they've got one time point that starts at six months, which neither the US or the UK have. So when you get these data, you can't really synthesise them. So the point we were making is it would be really good if we could get some international classifications and that each of these small studies would use those because then we can build on it. Uh, I mean, I think uh, interesting point about the timescales. When when we first started to hear about long COVID, if, when the Zoe app started um, publishing things, initially they were talking about people who still had symptoms at two weeks and then at five weeks. And, you know, and there's such short timescales. But what we saw with the first ONS studies is the number of people who'd got symptoms at five weeks was less than two weeks and then, again, less uh, at 12 weeks. So everybody thought it would keep reducing. What we're now seeing, of course, is that, that that's not true. And what we've seen in the, in the last ONS report is that the number of people who report that they still have symptoms for 12 months or more in the UK has shot up from 70,000 in March to 376,000 in May. When we saw that downward trend originally from the Zoe app and some of the early studies, people assumed it would burn itself out. That's not what we're seeing. And and if, if you look at the number of people in the UK who've been ill for over 12 months, uh, the pattern mimics the arc of the first wave. So people come, you know, the, as you start to get the people from, some, from the first wave peaking, you see the numbers go up. So we'll probably see it plateau in the next few months to reflect last summer. And then it will shoot up again in November and December as the second wave comes in. So if you were just to sum up in, I mean, how big is this for the UK? Like how big an impact is it going to be on the NHS, on the on people's work life, on family life? So um, because we're collecting this heterogeneous group, um, it's hard to know what the impact for individuals and services are. But, you know, we will, I think we will have by Christmas potentially a million people who've been ill for 12 months. And that will be more than the number of people who have dementia. So huge. Within that, though, there are different degrees of disability. You know, some people have got one symptom and they can accommodate it. Some people can't get out of bed. And that's another thing. We haven't really understood the impact. Our own survey showed that some alarming things that as long COVID is more likely to affect working age women who, who then can't go back to work. And that's a lot of the workforce in the NHS because it is more predominant in people who work in, in healthcare. So that will affect the ability of the NHS to recover its business as usual. They're also the prime unpaid carers for children and elderly relatives. So the consequence isn't just on them and their disability, but if they can't care for their elderly relatives, there's going to be pressure on social services to care for older people. Um, I think there's an urgent need to look in more detail about the functional impact and the social impact of long COVID and not just the biomedical. It's, it's almost about managing your um, 
just managing your life lifestyle isn't it working out what what a, a treatment course that's going to serve you day to day you you found that is it 80% of people with long covid it's affected their ability to work it, it, a lot of people it's it's not even just working it's affecting their ability to get up out of bed and look after their children do ba- see, see to their basic needs absolutely and I, I think there is that question so you have to say you know if, if you've got two dots going well wait and see or tree you have to say well how is it affecting me you know on the balance of risk if I can't get out of bed I'll take the drug and take the risk but actually if I'm fun- functioning quite well I'll wait and see and and medicine finds that very difficult you know, for all the talk about co-production, it still likes to have the answer and tell people. You know, there are some real risks. In fact, I'm speaking at the Patient Safety Congress in September where I'm going to say long COVID is a major patient safety issue because health professionals don't understand it. They're really risking their patients' lives. Um, in terms of, of pushing that, them in rehabilitation? Pushing them in rehabilitation, but also failing to take their symptoms seriously. So... There are lots of people with myocarditis that needs treatment. And if everybody's decided that it's just middle class, middle aged women who are just a bit hysterical and doesn't send them for treatment, that's a patient safety risk, just as much as the maternity units that are not reading the CTG properly. So interesting that it's interpreted like that, because in my experience, most sort of middle aged women with various issues don't go shouting about it until it gets so serious that they actually really do need help. I mean, it's not everybody, but there are an awful lot of people are experiencing that who talk about being gaslighted over long COVID. Yeah, they really are. People are just being sent away with no recourse for for taking any other action and no suggestion of what might help. They are being basically told it's in their mind a lot of the time, which is what happened to me for a long time. And and that is dangerous. Uh, And it's about a mindset that needs to change you've got to be open to the fact this is a new phenomenon that doesn't behave like diseases we've seen before that we think we understand and we can't apply our um, mental models about this disease uh, from other diseases to this disease that's the biggest challenge getting people to open their mind to it being different do you think people will get better or do you think i mean just looking at people with me and lyme disease and all these long-term illnesses just from your experience, your clinical experience, your years as a medical professional, or is this something we're going to have to live with? I think a lot of people are going to go into a long-term phase. But then if I look at something like HIV, if we put enough money into the research, then I think it can end up being a manageable disease that you can live life to the full. I do believe that we have the capacity to do good science and understand it and cure it. But we're very early on. As I say, it doesn't feel like it to you. In terms of understanding and treatment of a new disease, we've come further in a year than we have in any other disease in the history of humankind. There is certainly enough evidence to say there is a phenomenon of long COVID and it's not all in people's minds, but we're going to have to subdivide it and design better research to understand it better. So I am 
positive in the long term that we will understand what causes it and we can treat it. But in the meantime, I think we have to recognize that there'll be a growing number of people who are quite debilitated by it for more than a year. And we have to think about how we're going to support people with that whilst we're working on the science on how to treat it. I mean, that was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Maxwell. We could have spoken to you for hours. Um, Please, everyone, go and do look through the NIHR review in full. It contains lots of useful information and all the areas that we've discussed today, which are covered more in depth. Um, We'll post a link to it in our site. Join us next week as we get information from top medical professionals. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.